makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Joshua. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. It's good for all of us to be here. You are listening to First Voices Radio and Teokas and Ghost are sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Esopus, or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Esopus in the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. Well, today we have our friend and colleague from Hawaii, Anne Keala Kelly, a Kanaka Maoli, or the real Hawaiians, interviewing Shannon O'Loughlin, chief executive attorney and is a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. They'll be talking about the implications and consequences of those who would be buyers of Native cultural heritage. And now, Anne Kayla Kelly. Our guest for the first half of the show is Shannon O'Loughlin, Chief Executive and Attorney for Association on American Indian Affairs. Welcome to First Voices Radio, Shannon. Thank you for having me. I just want listeners to know Bonham Skinner is a large global auction house and it has announced starting today actually we're recording this on march 20th and they announced that they're having a 10-day american indian tribal art online auction shannon is on first voices radio today to speak specifically about what's taking place with that auction but shannon i'm hoping you can give listeners some context help them understand this long history of theft and looting of native bodies and funerary objects, et cetera. Can you bring us up to date starting whenever it started? Well, and and unfortunately it goes, what, back 500 years here. So thanks uh, so much for uh, giving some space to talk about these issues. So um, along with uh, colonization of the Americas by European countries and and then what became of the United States, there was a push off there was a dispossession of native people from everything that they held dear. So the lands, the lands that they cared for, the ways in which they took care of themselves, the way they took care of their families, 
uh, their religious practices, their cultural practices, everything was uprooted as, as, as other peoples <laughs> pushed their way from east to west and from west to east. And with that, if you can imagine, if you just think about yourself and the things that you have in your home, the things that you have in your, your church or your churches or places of, that are important to you. And, and if someone came and, and removed you and, and your entire community out, the things that would be left behind, um, that's what happened with Native peoples. And as part of that process of, of removing Native peoples from their homelands, from the places where they uh, buried their loved ones, the places where they practiced their religions, all of those things were left behind that they uh, didn't have control over or access to anymore. And so <laughs> there was a burgeoning science called archaeology and anthropology, and uh, there really grew up along this dispossession of, of, of Native uh, cultural and religious items and, and even Native bodies, this the scientific study of who native peoples were. And, and much of those items also went overseas, back overseas to those European countries and are now in their museums and institutions and auction houses. Well, it, I mean, in so many ways, I mean, you're, as you're saying all of this, those are areas of so-called science that are in a lot of ways just based on digging up and stealing indigenous people's burial uh, remains, like physical remains, our bones. And also the things that we were buried with, which are sacred objects. Yes, those burial belongings were meant to be uh, with those ancestors and, of course, be with them on their journey. Now, um, you know, it's estimated, well, we know in the U.S. that uh, museum institutions and federal agencies have reported at least 200,000 or about 218,000 Native American bodies in uh, U.S. museums and, and in federal agency collections. That's that's an astronomical number, but if you, I, it makes sense in a way because I think also a lot of universities still have remains. Yes, those are those are uh, within that number as well. And and uh, NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, uh, was passed in 1990. Because Congress saw, <laughs> they physically saw, they went inside the, the uh, National Museum of Natural History and other um, institutions and saw the number of Native bodies that were there just laying in boxes and, and uh, it changed the law uh, so that, you know, federal agencies and museums uh, had to work to consult with tribes and repatriate those things that were taken from them. And uh, it's such a wonderful law. It's a, a piece of human rights legislation where uh, the federal government kind of defines certain types of objects, including uh, Native American ancestors, their burial belongings, and objects of cultural patrimony and sacred items, which if you think about what those items mean, those are types of items that are held by a community, by a Native nation collectively. It, those are not individual items that a, one person has. They're not personal property. They're items of cultural heritage, just like Betsy Ross's flag, right? Um, uh, or the Declaration of Independence. Those things are 
are uh, pieces of cultural patrimony that belong to the United States. And, and such are the types of items that we see in, in institutions that are part of NAGPRA. Well, those, those same types of, of items that were defined under NAGPRA as, as being items that an institution has, has no ownership to and needs to repatriate, those are the same types of items that Bonhams is, is selling in their auction. They're selling items of cultural heritage, sacred items, funerary objects and objects of cultural patrimony. We don't we don't see any human remains in this collection, but sometimes we have. And and there's also we saw in, in Bonham's there was at least one piece of or there was one object that was a reproduction and and wasn't actually an item of of cultural heritage at all. Um, so so they were uh, fraudulently representing it? Yes. <laughs> so it was fake, basically. It's fake. Yes. Well, you know, you you brought up NAGPRA. Um, recently, the Safeguarding Tribal Objects of Patrimony Act. Can you, is that because certain things with NAGPRA aren't working? Can you tell us a little bit about that law? So the Safeguarding Tribal Objects of Patrimony Act uh, was developed specifically, it came out of a case um, uh regarding the Akama Shield, which was a sacred object that was taken from Akama lands. And which actually, is where? Where's Akama lands? Um, in New Mexico. Okay. And, uh, and trafficked um, and exported outside of the United States and put up for auction in France. So this is, this is, uh, the STOP Act was actually developed to, um, uh, require certain measures be taken if cultural heritage is leaving the United States and being exported. So, so uh, a trafficker or a dealer um, who wants to move items like that, they have to prove uh, that they have rightful ownership. And that information is actually open to the public and for tribes to um, uh, look at and review to make sure that that's the case. They truly have ownership of a, a particular item. Um, so it's it's a really good law, but it doesn't apply to uh, the Bonhams auction um, that's a domestic auction um, or to items that are currently NAGPRA items or that na where NAGPRA applies. So the STOP Act is specifically to stop the trafficking of Native American cultural heritage across um, uh, into other countries. Right. Well, you know, two things come to mind. Uh, one is the fact that this auction is taking place on the internet. So those are different, you know, things can move differently. We know this with in terms of information and obviously things can move differently with uh, in terms of sacred objects and things that have been stolen that really do belong to the people it's been taken from. I'm reminded of something that took place about 21 years ago. I don't know, you might know the story of what we sometimes refer to, if it's ever referred to as the eBay skull. And it was a native Hawaiian um, warrior's skull had been dug up out of a burial uh, grounds or battlegrounds really on Maui. And somebody was actually trying to auction it off on eBay. And that, for me personally, was like this major, I mean, I, we're talking about desecration, really. And desecration is like this really complex, but really true native indigenous experience. Like it goes right to the heart and the soul of us as people, as individuals. It goes into our ancestral lineages. And that particular uh, event was just like, I mean, it really... 
I mean, my experience in it, and I'm not going to go into that, but my experience of it was really, I felt it in my DNA. And I wonder, for you as a Native woman, you're Choctaw, and you do this kind of, you're doing this particular, you do a lot of different work. But on this issue, how do you navigate that? And how do other Natives navigate that? Because here's the other thing, and maybe you can comment on this. I often see things uh, on social media. I mean, I'm a little annoyed with what I see some Hawaiians doing on social media when it comes to repatriation of our kupuna being brought back home. And I think, what? They're not even supposed to show this. Why are you telling me, you know, on social media, why are you alerting the world that this is what you're doing? It's really supposed to be done, like, in secret for Hawaiians. So I just wonder, like, you know, in terms of Native world up on the continent, like, how do you navigate that? How does it feel for you and other Natives that you work with on this? Well, all of those feelings you were you were talking about that you were experiencing when... Uh you're going through the repatriation or, or the, the work on that um, skull that was being sold on eBay. Um, that's a constant um, with tribal nations and their cultural departments, uh, their historic preservation officers, their um, cultural committees. This is a, this is a constant um, because uh, the ground is constantly getting dug up. And we're always getting calls that desecration is happening. Dispossession is part of our DNA, um, you know, and the federal government kind of depended on that um, in order to um, assimilate us and, and take away our lands and resources. So um, that that idea of, you know, this lack of feeling secure in the things that you believe in, the things that you need for your health and your safety and your welfare have all been removed. Uh, you know, we weren't able to speak our languages until the 90s in some in mm -hmm. schools, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, this is all still current and still happening and our, and our graves are, are still being desecrated and, and dug up. And it's so extremely, I mean, frustrating is not the right word. It's, it's sickening that we're constantly having to explain how important these items and our ancestors are for our, our health and our, our security and our, our identity. Um, uh, people don't get it and they don't get it because they're making money off of it. And so well, how our, much money are they making? Like what, when you say that, like what kind of an economy is it? And, and it, that's a damn good question. And I don't think I have the answer to that, but, but some of these items um, that are up for auction at a place like Bonham's, they may go for 500 and then the price tags go up. We've seen uh, cultural heritage items into the hundreds of thousands of dollars being sold um, at places like Bonham's and Sotheby's and, and West Cowan's and Hindman's and, there, there are some big auction houses that, uh, Christie's is another, that are just uh, raking in the dough, uh, selling our, our cultural heritage items. And there was a time when they used to, uh, when tribes or folks like the Association on American Indian Affairs would contact them. They would work with us. They'd try to understand. Um, but there has been a movement since the passage of that STOP Act. Mm -hmm. Um, from um, uh, dealer associations 
um, in, in tribal antiquities, uh, they call our heritage tribal antiquities or um, artifacts. That, so that past of, tense, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Keeping us in the, in the past. Um, those, those people have, have actually are doing auctions and building legal funds to prevent us from potentially Hey, filing litigation against an auction house, um, trying to enjoin the sale of certain items. Uh, the association has been threatened uh, with well, legal action for speaking out like this. Who specifically, when you say that, who specifically, which organizations or names? Auction are houses. Okay. Just the whole industry, basically. So, yeah, it's been several, and I'm, I'm not going to name right. them for right. fear of... Yeah. <laughs> more backlash right. but so so i mean they have a, an economy they're trying to protect um there is a movement for stronger repatriation laws more than that there's an anti-racist movement uh and and people are wondering you know what to do with the the native cultural heritage they found in their you know grandpa's attic and things like that and so we're really working to try to educate the public and buyers who were looking at potentially investing in, in cultural heritage, that, that they could be making better decisions. They could be investing in contemporary native uh, artists whose items are meant to be sold and shared. And those stories are meant to be told and to have in everyone's hands. But, but Native American cultural heritage, like you were talking about with some kapuna, I mean, those things are sacred. Um, they have uh, religious importance. Um, some are secret. Some are considered dangerous. That yes. if, if you have these items, harm could come yes. if you're not a particular type of practitioner. And um, it, it's uh, there are just so many stereotypes about who Native people are, and 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 even the the items in these institutions and with dealers and auction houses. They've kept native people in these little boxes behind glass. Um, uh, it seems like they don't want to look at us like uh, contemporary living people today um, who are, you know, seeking the identity that they lost, seeking it back for their own health and well-being. You know, I think... And I can say this, you don't, I mean, you're an attorney and you're representing the Association on American Indian Affairs, but I am not, I am me. And I will say, I look at, you know, I listen to what you're saying and I know the, the things that go on here in Hawaii. I have come to understand this as a, as a tool of white supremacy and colonization. And, and that's an on, you know, people like to think of colonization as some kind of past tense thing and it's not. And it's an ongoing process of uh, erasing us and replacing us with themselves and but also when it comes to these sacred objects we the word we have is mana uh, it has its own spiritual power to it and strength and I think that the people who do what you're describing I think they know it on some level I think it's part of their you know whether it's a museum or just like you know like the eBay guy just held that kupuna hostage for decades you know for 40 years and decided after he was done doing whatever he did that he was going to just sell it to the highest bidder i think they know what they're doing i think they know that it's part of 
It's just, I see it as part, I don't take it out of the narrative, I guess is what I'm saying. Like you said, it's become a part of our DNA, having to do this kind of survival work and, you know, trying to get the pieces of our world back that we need for our well-being. So you know, I appreciate that you're able to speak to it in this uh, way. I sort of just hold this other position on it, and I, I've seen so much go on that I... Once in a while you hear the story, like I think it was in your press release about the individual who bought a Hopi feather headdress, and he gave it back. So That's right. That happens sometimes. Can you talk about that? A little bit, because I don't want to, it sounds like I'm just putting down people. I mean, I am, but there are also <laughs> good people, but there are also some people who are really just so ignorant, right? I mean, to what extent do you think ignorance plays a role in this whole industry? Uh, I, actually, the people, the, the those collectors and dealers and auction houses who've been doing this for decades, I, it's it's not ignorance. I, I think there, there are a few buyers that, that, that may see something that speaks to them in some way. And why wouldn't it? I mean, I, I had an elder who would, uh, you know, he was, the, he was a classic um, Plains Indian looking type of, uh, type of guy. And, and people would just come up to him all the time saying, Oh, you know, tell me your secrets. <laughs> tell uh -huh. me, talk about mysticism. Take me to a sweat. You know, it was all about, um, uh, uh, you know, um, I had a dream that a <laughs> Native American came to me or whatever it was. And he said, you know, how can they not? They're on our lands. So they're <laughs> on the places where our ancestors are buried. Of course, they're dreaming about us. Of course, they want to be a part of who we are, but there's something that goes past that that's kind of morbid, mm -hmm. um, like a collection fetish, or even some people have associated um, collectors of Native American bodies and, and cultural items or other indigenous people's cultural items as well, like um, uh, the same mental mindset as a serial killer. I agree, um, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree mean, with that the whole ideology of some of these folks collections and they're trying to pull something from that that's a little off-putting to say the least i mean i've had run-ins with some dealers who um who are very obsessed with native bodies and native items and think they know more about the item um, uh, and some of them, I've even heard dreams. They had a dream about the item. I mean, so, so they really get into it. And, and for me, a, a very awkward and uncomfortable way. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that those things are, uh, should be held by you. In fact, it should be warning you that that's not the thing to keep and that you need to, to, to return those, those items that, to me kind of a sickness um, i agree and it and it's also a psychological weight and uh it makes us kind of sick too you know because they we have well listen to what you just described it's sort of awkward right we have this the weight of what's already been done then there's the weight of trying to get it back and then there's this burden of their narratives right oh and, that's yeah it's like, then it becomes, now it's, and, and Native, and I can say this about Hawaiians, and I've noticed this with Natives everywhere, we have to stop being accommodating to that. I just want to say that to the audience. Like, I've become the non-accommodator. I used to be 
more patient. But now I just think, no, when it, especially when it comes to desecration, we just need to just be like, you need to get professional help is what we need to suggest. You know? Because yes, it then becomes your burden to do all of that, right? And then the things that you'll go through or we'll all go through to try to get it back because ultimately that's what you're trying to achieve, right? Right. And, and there's a lot of, and, and what we've seen with the work under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act is that the museums who are actually working towards repatriation and consulting with Native nations, they're, they're finally understanding what they have in their collections because the narratives, uh, the things that anthropologists and archaeologists and others have written about a particular item um, are often um, uh tainted by a Western ideology, by kind of a Christian and Western ideological mindset, and and don't have the expertise of the actual people whose cultural heritage it is, (laughs) right? No one ever asked them, what is this? What does it mean? Um, And probably weren't capable of doing so back then because, um, you know, Native people, um, you can read it in, in legal opinions, among other things, were considered savage and inferior to European peoples. So their opinion didn't matter anyway. So these items have been taken and reinterpreted in what was comfortable for Western, you know, audiences <laughs> and science. And so when those museums come together with tribes and they're working towards repatriation and and the museum is finally learning what it has under its roof then real relationship can begin so that that museum can finally fulfill its mission and educate the public in a way (laughs) that's truthful and truth-telling and involves those native stories that are meant to be shared and um, where people can come together in healing in, in an appropriate way and, and finally learn about who Native peoples are. I mean, just, just having a cultural item in a glass box on a wall with a label um, does nothing to bring Native and non-Native people together. It does nothing to educate us and change the world that we live in. And and that's why I think it's so important that we want to educate buyers or collectors, people who are holding cultural heritage, that there are options and opportunities here uh, to build a relationship, to repatriate and return something that's going to bring health and healing. And there could possibly be, you know, some tribes, I've seen tribes provide uh, reproductions or um, they will make a gift. Um, for that person. Um, there are some tribes or uh, nonprofits who will work with Native nations to provide um, tax exemptions um, as, so folks can return items as a charitable donation. So there's options for health and healing for both dealers and collectors as well as, as Native nations when repatriation can happen. Uh, how can listeners get involved right now with what's taking place at the Bonham Skinner? The, their headquarters are in Boston. What can people do? What would you like them to do? Well, of course, people can not buy. 
<laughs> not buy those items. Mm -hmm. They can they can ask Bonhams, have you consulted with the Native Nations affiliated with this item? Um, because that's really the only way to understand what an item is and whether it's uh, rightfully a, a commercial item for sale. So you can ban uh, auction houses. You could try to purchase and and help delegate or negotiate um, opportunities to bring items back. If, if you're in that position, you can give funding, uh, if, if that's easy, um, to an organization like the Association on American Indian Affairs uh, or um, to any particular tribal nation who's working on these issues. There are many tribal museums um, uh, out there. There's about 150 tribal museums out there um, that are working to interpret native histories and cultures as um, as are important to them. Uh, they can be supported. Can listeners go to your website for more information and also if they see a violation or they think a violation is taking place, can they let you know? Absolutely. So our website is indian-affairs.org and uh, you can contact us directly at general at indian-affairs.org. But go to our website, go to what we do, and you'll see in there repatriation. And there is um, uh, a couple of tabs there about NAGPRA, about international repatriation, uh, auction houses and dealers. Um, so you can learn more. Shannon O'Laughlin, mahalo nui for coming on First Voices Radio today. This is a really important issue, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And I hope you'll come back on the show again in the future. I would love to. Thank you so much, Yakoki.
heard was Great Divide by Eagle and Hawk, the band that our friend, the late Vince Fontaine of Winnipeg, Manitoba, founded in the 90s. The song is from the band's 2019 album, Liberty. The album took a pointed look at topics and issues front and center in today's world. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Tio Kazin, Ghost Horse. I'd like to welcome Stephanie Say, who is a co-founder and board president of Rome Free Nation, and Stephanie has been working in service to the last wild buffalo for over 20 years. Born in the Outer Banks of North Carolina and raised in Virginia, Stephanie learned about the continued war against wild buffalo in 1996 and has been advocating for them ever since. In response to their struggle, she moved to Montana on New Year's Day 2004, where she became the media coordinator for Buffalo Field Campaign, with whom she parted ways after 18 years of service over philosophical differences. For nearly 20 years of experience, standing with the Buffalo is an avid wildlife photographer, backcountry skier, and horsewoman. And she's a member of Deep Green Resistance and co-founder of Rome Free Nation. And she trusts that the Buffalo have called us not to just help defend them, to save us from ourselves, from the unsustainable and selfish creation of industrial civilization. You can find Rome Free Nation at RomeFreeNation.org. And I want to welcome you back. Two First Voices Radio, Stephanie, it's always an honor to speak with you because I know you're on the land and there's things that we don't hear. And because we think that that land that you're talking about is way up there in the Yukon somewhere. Yeah. And that's what we, we think, you know, like, oh, it's not going to bother us, but it really does. Just as much as Anwar, the Alaskan National Wildlife Refuge that's been now going to be drilled for oil and whatnot. But there's been a different type of extractive process going on with the buffalo that you're working with the bison actually and forming this new group of rome free nation really to me puts it more to the core of what's going on because some can be bought up and go the way of the mainstream when there's very few who actually are embedded with the earth so to speak not embedded in the banks or survival but embedded with existence and living just as the buffalo are that you work with but I want to welcome you to First Forces Radio, Stephanie C. It's so great to be back with you. Stephanie, when you talk about Rome Free Nation, we can all hear that. 
But what does it mean when the underpinnings of of the, the extinction of buffalo, and that's what the action is, to hunt them to death, really. And the war against wild buffalo is what you describe in, in your, your website. So I'd like you to start from that point on. Sure. Well, um, as you know, buffalo, once numbered in, you know, upwards of 70 million strong, spanning nearly the entire continent, um, when European invaders came, they brought cattle with them, Eurasian cattle, and they viewed wild buffalo as direct competitors for grass. And so they waged a campaign that didn't, actually didn't take very long at all. In fact, in the span of about 20 years, they nearly wiped out all of these buffalo, almost driven them to the extinction. And um, there were 23 individuals. There were a couple of pockets of buffalo in other places, but there was 23 individuals who saved themselves from extinction by seeking refuge in what is now Yellowstone National Park's Pelican Valley. And when they were discovered, the United States Army, having realized the error of their ways, decided that they would protect this little group of buffalo. And they have become today Yellowstone's, the central herd in Yellowstone, the last continuously wild population of migratory bison left in in this country. And yet today there's still a war waged against them. It's ongoing. The cattle industry still views them as direct competitors for the grass. And so, you know, it's it's what we call it a centuries old range war about the grass and who gets to eat it. And the livestock industry does not want to share the grass with the native roamers, the wild buffalo. And so there's management practices in place today. Um, the, the bison are mismanaged under a state federal tribal plan called the Interagency Bison Management Plan. And that plan allows for harassment, chasing buffalo out of Montana into Yellowstone National Park, um, killing buffalo via uh, a really excessive hunt that is taking place. And still, as we speak right now, today, there's probably buffalo dying in the Gardner Basin uh, north of the park and also allows for capture um, inside Yellowstone National Park, Stevens Creek bison trap. They get captured to either be sent to slaughter or to either be captive and basically domesticated. It's called the quarantine quarantine process. Um, so there, you know, in any way you look at it, wild buffalo never get a break. They're always under attack. And even if it's the, you know, tourist season in Yellowstone, you've got millions of people wanting to get selfies, get right up in there with a big old bull during the rut and they get tossed <laughs> and wonder why. Um, but yeah, it's a big problem. And this year has been a really significant year. 30% um, of the population has been removed, either killed or eliminated from the wild. And that's a huge number. We went into the season with there being around 6,000 buffalo. Now there are less than 4,100. And there's probably even less than that because that was last Friday, uh, last the 18th. That was the numbers then, and the killing has continued. So uh, more buffalo are gone, and it doesn't look like there's going to be an end in sight anytime soon. And every time they reproduce, it's the, still the original stock, the original seed. And I'm thinking about... um. Yeah, I like that part about there's a season of the buffalo are going to enjoy. It's a ceremony. They're going to toss the human. <laughs> <laughs> and that season of tossing the human around 
Um, and I think about the numbers because you started with 6,000 bison. And when it comes down to when it was ongoing, but you got interested back in 1996. And that time there was a great slaughter of whatever buffalo was there at that time. Can you give us an estimate of how many buffalo have been slaughtered since then? Oh, oh, close to 15 to 20,000 in all those years. Wow. Insane. And, you know, this year is very similar to that winter of 96, 97. We've had a lot of mild winters in the past few years due to climate chaos. And this year, you know, we were expecting more of the same. And with a milder winter, you don't get such a huge migration, the need for buffalo to find lower elevation habitat. But this year, winter came early and it came really hard. And it started snowing a lot in, in November and it really hasn't stopped. Um, there is so much snowpack in the park. And there were also warming days where the snow melts just that little bit and then it gets cold again and freezes and it becomes like concrete. And buffalo use their huge heads um, supported by that great hump that they've got to, to crater through the snow to get to the grass beneath. But when the snow turns into concrete like that, they can't do it. And sometimes you'll even see them walking on, I mean, 2,000 pound buffalo walking on top of this frozen snow. So they had to migrate. They had to seek lower elevation habitat. And they did in the thousands, especially in the Gardner Basin, which is on the north side of Yellowstone National Park. And the hunters came in droves. And it has been a killing spree that is the worst that I've ever seen in all my time. It's just been nuts. And it's still going on. Do you perceive that these threats of hunters, of course, Wild Bill Cody and Buffalo Bill, those pseudonyms I like to call them, that's part of the management plan or mismanagement plan, as you say. This is the old narrative that we could talk about. Let's look at what happens if the old narrative is put away. What would that mean for exactly the land and the bison and all the other habitat that depend on bison? Because people don't understand that bison are a keystone species, as you would exactly. say. Yes. So you mean if the if the narrative went away, if they were allowed to be who they are and express themselves as they should? Yes. This is the, one of the reasons why I'm saying where you described a lot of old narratives that people are caught up into. And it took them over 100 years to finally say, okay, we're going to manage the land, manage the bison, and here's how we're going to do it from that model of colonialism. Well, you know, the buffalo don't need humans to help manage them. They can do things on their own pretty darn well, as the earth chose them to do. And before, it, you know, industrial, especially civilized humans got involved, we had super healthy prairies and grasslands, which are now some of the most endangered habitats on the planet. But with the return of buffalo, allowing them to express themselves as who they are, we would see recoveries, enormous recoveries in, in the health of prairie, prairie and grassland ecosystems. We would see, you know, other wildlife species really rebound. Prairie dogs, for example, who are kind of a, a little sibling to, to the buffalo. Um, we would see healthier grizzly bear populations, healthier wolf populations, um, healthier insect and bird populations. You know, all those wallows. Like when buffalo in the summertime, especially, they get all itchy and their fur starting to shed and they get down on the ground and roll around and they're so big 
they create these wallows in the ground. And during the rainy season, when that happens, those wallows fill up with water and become temporary habitat for for amphibians and birds and, and, you know, everyone who drinks water on the prairie. So, I mean, the earth would rebound in such a huge way. And because a healthy bison population would mean that they're existing in the tens of millions once again, there would be so much land. There would be so many wildlife species that would recover and be helped and protected and sheltered. And, you know, not only that, the the actual, just the sheer biomass of the buffalo being on the landscape, you know, they grow old, they die. They get sick, they die. Those their bodies also feed the earth. All their poops feed the earth. Their fur collects and carries seeds around to help replant. And their hooves are, you know, they may be shaped similar to cows, but they're so different. Buffalo's hooves gently till the soil of the earth where cattle will stamp it down. Um, you know, it's just hundreds and hundreds of benefits that that are endless. And, you know, that's that's one of the reasons why we should stand back and let them recover. As you speak, Stephanie, I'm, I'm getting these these thoughts about, okay, the ships came with a taste of beef taste of cattle and that's what's overcome this land everybody's supposed to eat beef right the truer nurturing like this is the original taste of the land is bison when i think and i think about how it was set up is and i go back to maybe a few years ago when i talked to a person who was grew up all her life and finally they took down this dam in in western washington called the alva dam and you mm-hmm. talk return of species. In one year, they took down the dam. The next year, all the spawn, all the all the the salmon returned, including oh, yeah. migratory birds, everything. In one year, or before oh. they were coming back, and they weren't allowed to because it was what I describe in a more more metaphorical sense is a mental attitude that you can. That what put it up was a mental attitude. Now it's going to take another attitude to take that mental attitude down so we can say we need the buffalo. We know that buffalo because the machines themselves is not a keystone species. But I think that's where our minds have gone to, where we have have a mechanical mind and yeah. lack of empathy for the buffalo. So there is a mental attitude that's blocking the way. And that's what I talk about. Just your thoughts on that, Stephanie. No, I agree with you 100%. And I also think, too, that there's a false narrative, a false positive in this country, and that they say that the saving of the buffalo is America's greatest conservation success story. 100% false. They have not conserved the migratory species. We're dealing with what we deal with in Yellowstone. It is not good. They're being considered for Endangered Species Act protection because it's so bad. But what people do see are there's 500,000 beefalo in the country. People see them all over the place, behind fences, being raised as livestock, being game farmed. And people are calling that the greatest conservation success story. And it's absolutely false. I mean, you don't turn the native rightful roamer in this land into livestock and call it a win. It's not a win. That's a human livestock paradigm. So, um, but you see people see bison meat at the grocery store. They see bison behind fences along the highway. And so they think things are okay because they see them. 
but they don't understand that what they're seeing is a human dominated situation. It's not wild migratory buffalo. It's not buffalo being, you know, who they are supposed to be. Um, so that gives a false positive that things aren't that bad. There's buffalo. Mm. No, there's not. Mm. You can't turn being free into democracy. Right. <laughs> it's democracy that's covering it up. And right. So this attitude of sort of um, this creation, as you call it, a selfish creation of industrial civilization that has come into play here. Now, as an indigenous person, I'm speaking from that viewpoint, a lot of this has been, how do I say it? We, we've been in a coma of colonial coma, comatose. People have forgotten who we are, that we are so much in the management of survival that we think we have to manage earth to survive. In other words, Stephanie, we are still adapting the earth to our needs. And yet, in the same sense, we're killing the earth for our needs. When do you see with your work that we can actually adapt ourselves to the earth needs? For me, the number one would be stop pulling the trigger. Right. I mean, and that's part of the problem. And I really would like to talk with you about this because you being an indigenous person will have a perspective that I may not understand but most of the killing, 93%, in fact, and it's probably higher now, of the buffalo who've been killed in the hunt have been killed by tribal hunters who come to Yellowstone to hunt under treaty right. And for the people who come there, that's what it's about. It's about having a right to do something and exercising that right. But what about the buffalo? What about their perspective? What about what's right for them? And that is not being considered. And at the same time, you have so many tribal people who say we want more buffalo on a larger landscape, yet by their very actions coming especially to the Gardner Basin and gunning down entire family groups in the span of minutes, that's never going to happen. So how do we address that? That is something that's been, and it's getting worse. There's more and more tribes coming to hunt under treaty right and more and more buffalo are dying each year. This wow. is the worst year in a very long time. This is, to me, a total lack of management. Maybe it's following the treaties to a T. And right. just in that, into that position of this is all we got, so therefore we better get what we can. And they've turned treaty rights. Native people have forgotten our responsibilities to the earth. And we become the, the anthropocentric view that the treaty stipulates that, okay, Maybe it's our ancestors didn't really mean rights. We're talking about our responsibilities to earth. Right. We always talk about what we can do and action from it. And what are you doing now that, that maybe there's a call for? There is, a, well, still at this moment, um, Yellowstone National Park has 374 buffalo inside that capture facility that I, they are saying will either be sent to slaughter or released. So we were asking people to call the superintendent, Cam Sholley, uh, 307-344-2002, and tell him to release those buffalo. Enough damage has been done. Too much damage has been done. Release the buffalo who, who are in the trap. And then we invite, because we're a brand new organization, Rome Free Nation, we really encourage people to visit us on our website, RomeFreeNation.org. Find us on Facebook, Rome Free Nation, and learn about what's going on and, and, and support us and talk with us and help us 
stay in the field, get back in the field, be with these Buffalo on a regular basis so we can demonstrate and show people what is actually taking place because nobody else is telling anyone the truth. We will tell you the truth. So go RomeFreeNation.org with Stephanie C. And just a thought that you, you've always compelled me to think more, Stephanie. Thank you for that. Um, and it's an honor to think this way, actually. So bison or buffalo, are, they're not artificial intelligence. No. And we kowtow, the human, the Westerner, whatever, the modern hospicing modernity people, is that's, this is what we're talking about. We, we don't understand that by this way of living through the old narrative, we're actually killing ourselves. And we have the language of hospicing now. We're always talking about dying. And yet the bu buffalo and the bison nature itself is not artificial intelligence and not going to be controlled by algorithms. It's actually going to be real narrative. And right. that's the narrative of Earth. And no one listens to that because we're so caught up into technology. Thank you so much for this. And uh, any last thoughts? Um, you know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Like I did mention earlier, these buffalo are being considered for Endangered Species Act protection, which is one of their greatest chances for survival. And we do have a take action on our website to help people submit comments. Comments are being accepted through June. It's a very long comment period. Anyway, do what you can. Learn what you can. Visit Rome Free Nation and take action for these buffalo because they need your help. Very, very good. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much. And um, thank you. RomeFreeNation.org. Anagopta nankapikihe, Bruce Voices Radio, Palamayayapi. We appreciate you all for listening. I'd like to thank Anne Kayla Kelly for her interview with Shannon O'Loughlin of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Thanks to Stephanie C., who's been working in service to the Last Wild Buffalo for over 20 years. And my name is Teokas and Ghost Horse. Uksha Ake Yankte. Come on.